Welcome to episode two of Flip Turns. I'm Chris Connor, and this podcast is a love letter to the sport of swimming. If this is your second lap on this journey, thank you. And if you're new, let me know what you think at flip-turns.com. In this episode, Iraq War veteran Mike Ergo shares his experience and how swimming played a huge part in helping him recover from post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. Parents should know that this is not the episode to listen to in the car with young children. Now, let's dive right in. Swimming was a lifesaver for me, literally a lifesaver, because I could start to feel okay and I could start to feel like I was spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally home. Whereas before, my body was back, but my spirit and my mind were still in Iraq. Okay, let's back up. Before Mike discovered swimming, and before going to serve his country in Iraq. In high school, Mike was a self-described band geek. In his senior year, a Marine Corps recruiter came to his school and talked to the band class, and Mike saw an opportunity. I wanted to be a part of something that only I can earn. And having grown up with a privileged background and just grew up in Walnut Creek, in a very nice, easygoing, mellow city. I knew that without trying too hard, I could get by and I could be mediocre very easily. And service to other people was important to me. So it felt like a fork in the road that if I didn't take this chance right now, I might not and then look back and regret it. So it was exciting. It was something that I wasn't sure I could do but I'll just sign up and figure it out. <laughs> I think the fear of, oh no, what did I do, propels me to become better. Between the time he signed up and headed off to boot camp, the world had changed. I went to boot camp in October of 2001, and the events of September 11th, the terrorist attacks in New York, occurred while I was overseas on a trip right after I graduated high school. My parents sent me to uh, the UK to take a two-week bus trip. And while I was in the city of Old York, I got the news of that. And at first I thought that people were kind of playing a joke on me because it didn't seem like it was something real. But then I realized that, yes, I was joining the United States Marine Corps at a very pivotal time in history, in our country's history at least. I said, hmm, maybe being part of the band is, is not what my country needs right now out of me. And so I chose to be in the infantry, and I asked the people at the United States Military School of Music if I could switch to the infantry, and they were happy to let me do that. Mike spent his first deployment as a new Marine at sea. Along with the rest of his unit, he watched the fall of Baghdad and the toppling of Saddam Hussein's statue on a TV screen in the chow hall aboard ship. Visiting Italy, Greece, Spain, and Portugal was nice, but having trained for so long, it felt like being on the football team and going to practice every day, but never getting in the game. In November of 2004, Mike was on his second deployment, and the war was still going on. 
he found himself in Iraq in the Second Battle of Fallujah, the bloodiest battle of the war. I first remember the ramp to the back of my armored vehicle that inserted me into the city with my unit dropping down and running off it. I was, I was the first one off on, on my vehicle. And going into the city, we were already hearing tracer, tracer fire, rockets, explosions, you know, jets dropping bombs, all the noises that I expected to hear. And I don't know where the fire's coming from, who's shooting who necessarily. So it's, there's a lot of confusion. And when I got off my vehicle, I took a step and a half and I tripped on something and fell on my face. And it felt like it was just a big sack of grain or something. It was really heavy. And then I turned around and looked and it was an insurgent who had been shot and killed. Right away, I knew, okay, well, death is all around us. Fallujah had been a city of about 250,000 people. Coalition forces had withdrawn in April when Congress decided that the risk of civilian casualties was too great. That gave Iraqi insurgents and foreign fighters who joined them six months to fortify the city, dig bunkers, and build weapons caches. Most of the civilian population evacuated the city after leaflets were dropped to warn them of an imminent attack. It was believed at the time that the battle for Fallujah would be the deciding battle in the Iraq war. Urban combat is very tricky because it's a 360 degree battlefield. As opposed to fighting out in the open fields, you have possible enemies shooting you from rooftops, from windows, even from little underground bunkers. So you have to go down a street and members of your squad or team have to have weapons pointed in all directions to cover you while you go in case you take fire. Then you enter a house hoping that the door is not rigged to explode and blow up like in some cases had happened to some of our guys. And once you get in there, you have to identify someone hiding, waiting to shoot you and hope that you can shoot them first. So the odds are against the person kicking in the door because you don't have the element of surprise usually. You can do it so efficiently to hopefully get the drop on someone. We did that and a lot of times we'd kick open doors and no one would be in there. And that was a relief. And then sometimes people would be in there and in a city this big, you can't possibly lock up all the doors and the windows. So even though you've cleared a house, doesn't mean it's clear the next day or even you know three or four hours later. My mind started wondering, how many times can I play the odds to where I will have the drop on this person who is in a much better position to kill me? I kept thinking, if I do this long enough, I'm going to get shot in the face. 14 years later, Mike seems very comfortable now talking about his experience. Honestly, more than I was asking about it. But the one thing I had to know was, what was your mindset going into combat when you know that some people aren't coming back? I was more afraid to let my friends down than I was to die because being a coward or letting people underneath me in my command get hurt, I was way worse than being killed. I was worried about being killed, don't get me wrong, but after a while too, 
I just felt that it, it was inevitable that I would be killed because we were just, we were losing people, so many people. And the very nature of urban combat is difficult. So I let go. I just, I just, one day I just said, okay, I'm, I, I don't think I'm going to make it out of this. And part of that very strangely was relieving because I no longer had to worry about trying to, trying not to die. And so that freed me up to concentrate all of my efforts to focus on taking care of my guys and completing the mission. And so in that way, not expecting to come back for a time being was actually helpful until I got back. And then I got back home from combat and, and I didn't know what to do because for so long I was just surviving. Coming home in January of 2005, it was, it was the best. It was, it was better than I imagined winning the Super Bowl or anything else. And, you know, we had, we had beat death. And to make it out of that city alive was a huge victory for us, for those of us who came back. And there was a honeymoon period of probably two or three weeks eating the food we like to eat, being able to relax, being able to sometimes even having days off. And we celebrated, you know, by, by drinking a lot. And pretty soon though, the celebrations kind of turned sour and it became more about noticing who wasn't there. And we started to really just try to deal with some of the things that were happening in our minds. And I remember starting to see people out of the corner of my eye, or I remember having feelings, getting really nervous, like something was about to happen. But it was, it was just here and there, it was just little blips. And because for, for a large part, I was with a lot of my guys on base. And that, that layer of security and trust I built up with these guys going through the most difficult thing I thought imaginable, urban combat in Fallujah, I felt safe with all my guys. So that changed too when I was honorably discharged from the Marine Corps later that summer and came home. And it was nice to be back in the Bay Area. I loved it. But all of a sudden, I was back without all of these guys who, who I'd been with for three to four years, and especially during these really trying times. And now I was faced with trying to return to normal or be a civilian again. And I'm not, I wasn't sure what that meant. And I was just kind of trying to live in the moment a lot. And by that, I mean, get drunk and, and high as much as possible, or, or just try not to think about all these thoughts that kept coming in my head. And I eventually I was diagnosed with PTSD. And I learned that that was the reason that I would have these feelings that even though my mind knew I was back home in the US, my body would feel like something really bad was about to happen. One day I was walking down the stairs in my house and out of nowhere, with no thought that preceded this, I felt this intense tidal wave of fear and it was paralyzing literally because I just kind of collapsed and melted down onto the stairs and my heart was beating and I was really fast and I was having trouble breathing. 
and I just was terrified and I couldn't figure out why. And my mind was looking for a reason. And, and later on, I realized that my body was replaying this near-death scenario where I was trapped in a house with someone shooting at me and my point man after we had just walked down the stairs, just watching and feeling really bullets go between him and I, just thinking, oh, this is it. And in the moment in combat, you know, we're trained very effectively so not to dwell on things like that. You compartmentalize these feelings and emotions and you feel them later. And so now was that later and I was feeling them in a very real way, but I was confused because I didn't know what was happening. Because all of us were trained that it's a weakness if you have any emotional problems going on or mental problems. The people who, who got help for those things were malingerers or people trying to get out of duty and it was frowned upon. So it doesn't fit in, in, in being a Marine. And that was a big part of my identity. And it worked perfectly for combat and perfectly for being in the military, but it did not work well at all for being a civilian and, and coming back home with the effects of PTSD in my life now. So what do you do when you're in a constant state of panic? When the noise in your head won't stop, but you've been trained to believe and have proven to yourself through combat that you're strong enough to handle anything. I went through a few years of drinking and, and smoking, sometimes just you know using pain pills or doing a little cocaine. Anything I could do to, to numb out and kind of just whew, feel a little bit of uh, relief and get that feeling of anxiety to go away for a few hours. And it was, it felt so good to have that never ending feeling of panic to go away. But eventually more consequences and less fun was happening. I was starting to create a lot of wreckage and, and I was starting to embarrass myself, break people's trust lie, just become a person I was ashamed to be. And the things that, and traits I had spent so long building up in the Marine Corps were, were dissolving. My credibility was going away. And it was like I was just melting back into even worse than I was before I joined as a person. And that's how I saw it. So one day my wife, we'd been married almost four years at that point. She had known me since middle school. We'd known each other since then. And she knew who I was underneath all of that. And she's able to say, I have tried to support you the best I can, but I can't do this anymore. So you need to choose if you want to stay married with me or continue to use drugs, alcohol, and just put off whatever you need to deal with. And... It was terrifying, but at the same time, it was just, it was exactly the ultimatum I needed to unshackle myself and finally face some grief, face the traumatic memories and fear and anger and all these things I'd put away in this box that was kind of bursting and this, and, and process all these things. And so finally, oh, I, it was, in that sense, it was relieving. I could finally deal with it, but it was also almost as, well, probably 
just as terrifying as combat because now I had to feel all the feelings I'd put off feeling in combat. Fortunately for Mike, someone who had been down that road before reached out to help him. I had a neighbor who was a Vietnam vet, infantry company commander, and had seen a lot of gnarly stuff in Vietnam. And he came up to me and said, hey, you look kind of like I did when I got back from Vietnam. Why don't you come to this place that I go to and talk to someone there? And so he gave me permission, essentially, to be okay with talking to someone. So I trusted him and I trusted his suggestion that I come. So I came to the Concord Vet Center where I work now and started talking to someone and said, hey, I've, these are the things I've gone through. This is what I'm experiencing. What do I do? Because I hadn't planned to come home alive. So I was just kind of just, you know, treading water, not moving forward, maybe moving backwards. And I started to get some feelings of hope. And that was great because I now at least could feel something and something positive. It was like a little spark of light. One of the big things, big shifts in my life after getting sober was to start running again. I had a friend give me a registration to the Walnut Creek Half Marathon, and I hadn't run that far before. So I was like, well, I got to do this now. So I started running, and after probably a week and a half of the initial kind of aches and pains of starting a new sport or restarting something, I started to notice a very familiar feeling of, of just wellness, like feeling good in my body. And this is something that was, that I knew, I, it was a very familiar thing that I'd forgotten about. I was like, oh, I can feel good doing things that are healthy. And that experience was enough to help me keep going with that. And that same year, I was able to be challenged by another Vietnam vet to do an open water swim from Alcatraz to aquatic park in San Francisco. And so he told me about this idea and he's like, so what do you think? I want to lead a bunch of veterans to do this swim. And I told him that it sounded like the dumbest idea I've heard in a long time. Because <laughs> that's a long way to swim. It's cold and I hate swimming. So all of those things <laughs> make it the worst idea. And then he knew exactly how to get me into it because he said, well, that's neat. I have done this a few times before with 12-year-old Boy Scouts and they liked it, but I can see if it's too hard for you, I understand. He just called me out. And so I started swimming in the bay with a wetsuit. And that initial shock of cold water was interesting because no longer did I have time in that moment to feel depressed or low energy. It shocked, literally shocked that out of my body for that time being. And eventually I would start swimming and with my rudimentary skills, I, I could still get into a rhythm of swimming, feeling the stroke, feeling my hand enter the water, pushing the water, having my arm recover and come back out, and then eventually start to breathe in a regular pattern and just start to feel that, okay, this is working. And as I started swimming, the thoughts that were so loud in my head, these memories that were just bombarding me of, oh, you messed up. If you had done this, this guy would have survived. And what are you doing wasting your life? And all this negative talk and all these memories, I, they just drifted away. And I could be there right in the water. And it felt good. 
as much as it felt good to run, swimming in the bay felt at least 10 times as good. And things were quiet. I could hear my breathing. I could hear the wind. I could hear seagulls. And that's about it. Afterwards, I remember sitting and just watching the clouds go by and had this in very intense, peaceful feeling, this, this really powerful body high where I knew I was exactly where I needed to be in the universe right then. There was nowhere else I wanted to be. And I started to feel completely home now because I, had felt, I felt fractured and I started to feel whole again. After swimming a mile and a quarter and after running a half marathon, I said, oh, okay. You know, I, these were things that I didn't think were within my ability level before, but now I've done them. And I had this feeling like, what else can I do? Mike happened to be on vacation in Kona, Hawaii with his wife and her family at the same time as the Ironman World Championships. At that point, he only knew one thing about triathlon. It wasn't for regular people. And I said, I don't even know what it is, but it's a lot of different exercises all put together. And then we watched the day of the race and I watched these people go by on bikes and I learned that you had to run, swim 2.4 miles, bike for 112 miles, and then run an entire marathon. And it, the prospect of, the idea of doing that was so terrifying to me that I started to get angry just watching the people. I was like, why would you do this? And it was this weird moment, but just like the swimming and just like, other things in my life, facing my feelings, and even even to a little bit, the running a half marathon, pushing myself to do something I didn't think was possible. Instead of running away from the fear, I, I said, well, maybe I can run towards this fear because that has been when I've had the greatest growth and been at my best is when I say, I'm going to move towards this fear and see what I can do. And so I signed up for a half Ironman right when I got back. And I didn't know why exactly I was doing it. But then I, I saw a really inspirational cl clip of a woman, Lisa Hallett, from, uh, who had lost her husband in Afghanistan. And she started running to honor him and wore a shirt with his name on the back and started telling people about him as a way to deal with that grief and with the loss of him. And I saw this clip of her racing in the Ironman World Championship. And I said, oh, this is awesome. And, and it was the, f the first time in a while I, I, I could connect to such a powerful emotion and let myself cry and be okay with that. And it felt good. And so I said, I'm gonna dedicate this race that I've signed up for, this half Ironman to all of the families of the guys we lost and all the guys we lost and put their names on my jersey. So instead of the memory of them being something I wanted to avoid and just associated with pain and loss and, and ugliness and awful feelings, I could say, I'm proud to have known these guys and I wanna honor them and their sacrifice by being the best version of myself 
possible. And that's how triathlon became a big focus in my life because I was able to discipline myself to work out early in the morning and get in shape and go to bed early and eat well and stick to something, even when it was difficult, not just when it was easy. And it became more than just getting in shape, but more about more as a, a process and a method to be better in life in all areas. Mike now had a bigger purpose for his training. He would do a half Ironman wearing the names of the friends he had lost on his jersey. He had set his sights on the biggest stage of all. He was about to get a big surprise while being interviewed on the Zero Blog 30 podcast about his experience in Iraq. If one day I could get to the Ironman World Championships somehow in Kona, Hawaii, and be able to share their stories, I'd be all over that. Well, that's, because, that's weird because I'm the one that's going to be able to tell you that you are going this year. They're giving you a spot in Kona this year. And for the listeners, he like legit doesn't know, but I have the email from Lindsay like right here that they picked you because of all the stuff that you've done for veterans and getting the story out that you got a spot in Kona, dude. You're kidding me. Nope. So in October, bro, you're going. Oh my God. (laughs) That isn't real. As we wrapped up our conversation, I asked him what swimming meant to him. You already heard him say that it saved his life, but how does it make his life better every day? Swimming is my favorite part of triathlon. And I was the most surprised about that because I have a lot of experience running. I have a little experience, you know, riding a bike as a kid, but swimming, I could do with other people and swimming on a team, interacting with other people, being in the water, being welcomed by a master swimming team in Walnut Creek and by really good swimmers. It's become this awesome community and this awesome way of being able to have that time just to not have to be attached to all these thoughts about what's already happened or what might happen in the future, but I can be right there in the water and I can feel my hand and body in the water. I can feel myself trying to work through the water, not fight against it. And it's such a good feeling that it's, uh, even though I've been trying to describe it for the last three or four years, I still fail to really put into words how good that feeling is of being in flow, of being in a state of just being and not thinking. Today, my life is so much better than I could have imagined because not only am I home and do I have all my limbs and my capacity to think, operate in the world, but I have a purpose and I have a family, I have a wife and I have two little kids that I love and they love me and I work as a counselor, a clinical social worker for other veterans. And so I get to offer hope to people and and I don't cure them or anything, but just like my counselors did for me, I get to be their guide so they can find all these answers within themselves and, and reconnect to the things they really know deep down inside if they're able to face 
these fears. I, I, I fit in, I'm, I'm, I, I have a purpose. I, I'm no longer surviving, I'm directing my life. And just a few months ago, getting the ability to race that Ironman World Championships in, in Kona, Hawaii, being invited by Ironman to tell my story was the biggest honor I've had since becoming a Marine because I didn't, I had, I assumed that a lot of other people were doing the same thing I was doing and that there was nothing special about, okay, well, I'm just doing this to honor my friends. But apparently it struck a chord with some people and, and I'm trying to use whatever media attention I've gotten to help other people discover that they have that same ability to deal with whatever fears and, and borders and boundaries they've put in their life, that they don't have to shy away from them, that instead of being an obstacle, it becomes a way of empowerment. So for me, I'm able to use fear as an energy source now. And instead of having it repel me and having to shy away from it, I can see, oh, that's, that's, you know, that's like a, it's a compass pointing towards what I need to do now. And it's fear, so it's terrifying. But when I can start walking forward, even slowly, I can, I can do something I didn't think I was capable of doing. And that's just what I wanted to use any, any kind of influence I have to, to let other people know that they can do that same thing. Swimming saved Mike's life, but there are a lot of veterans out there who, as you heard him say, haven't yet felt permission to talk about their problems that stem from PTSD. These folks have done everything their country asked of them, so if you know one who needs help, reach out to them, won't you? Hey, if you like this podcast and want to hear more inspiring stories of what swimming means in people's lives, there are a few things you can do. One, tell your friends. Two, leave a review on iTunes. And three, help me find more stories. You or someone you know has a swimming story to tell. It doesn't have to be life or death. I just want to know why you love swimming. Email me, chris at flip-turns.com. That's it. I'll see you in the water.